Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. For our scripture reading, and we're continuing in our series on the parables in Matthew chapter 13, all of which having uh, something to do with the kingdom of God. And I'm going to read just three verses today, 44 through 46 from Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe see. So followers of Jesus have been entrusted with this awesome responsibility of incarnating God's vision and hope for human life and for community. We've been commissioned, we've been entrusted with this incredible responsibility to live out the reality of God and to do so in community. And this is the essence of what we pursue together and work for together as a church, and over the past several weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, or the phrase Matthew uses for various reasons, is the kingdom of heaven. And our focus in this series is the present reign of God over everything. And especially, uh, our focus over these weeks has been his reign over our lives, his presence, and his influence shaping my thoughts, my character the feelings that I have, my relationships and how I am in those relationships, my will and his presence and his influence shaping and influencing the impulses and the habits in my body. We're talking then about Jesus leading us, shaping us in every single way to be his child or his woman or his man. That is the kingdom coming into our lives as we learn to live under his good reign. And the kingdom is an absolutely glorious, beautiful, riveting vision of what life right now can be with God. And just to keep it real, because we all know this, the kingdom can also be elusive, it can be challenging, it can be hard to envision what the kingdom looks like in real life, And so we always have to do the work of imagining the kingdom in our everyday contexts. And what would it look like if the kingdom were to break out or were to come more fully in us and through us? Well, these two short parables in Matthew chapter 13 have a very simple point. There is nothing on earth, on Mars, anywhere more beautiful, more valuable, more desirable, more satisfying than the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, we as human beings are most fully aligned with what we were intended to be and how we were intended to live when we are living under God's reign in every facet of our being. In our thoughts, our will, our body, our soul, our feelings, and relationships. 
and experiencing the transforming power of the kingdom of God in one of those facets will stir the hunger to experience this in other facets. There is simply nothing more valuable than the kingdom. And there is no cost or sacrifice too great because the kingdom is always worth it. The goodness of the kingdom, the goodness of life under God's reign, the goodness of surrendering to him in whatever way always exceeds the cost to experience the kingdom. Every time, in every situation, no exceptions, no yeah buts, no equivocations, no contingencies, life in God's kingdom right now under his reign and leadership is always better than any of the alternatives. Now, these two parables are unique compared to the others we've considered so far in Matthew chapter 13 because the previous parables were spoken to a large crowd that had gathered around to hear Jesus. But these two parables I just read were spoken only to the 12 disciples and maybe a few others who were gathered together in the house where they were staying. So Jesus leaves the crowds and he goes into the house and he shares these two parables with his closest disciples. And I think this is important for us. These parables on the supremacy of the kingdom are for the disciples back in the locker room, if you will. Because disciples are the ones who are prone to forgetting how valuable the kingdom is. We become too familiar with it. We hear about it so much, we stop being able to hear. And our own experience tells us this just as we think back on our own lives. We don't decide once to treasure the kingdom. It just doesn't work like that. We make one decision one time. I'm going to treasure the kingdom, and thereafter, for the rest of our lives, we always treasure the kingdom. We know it doesn't work like that. The old self, as the Apostle Paul calls it, dies hard. And we keep a foot, it seems to me, in the kingdom of self. We hedge. We hold on to this idea of ruling over whatever, controlling, you fill in the blank, having our own way with, you name it. The thoughts we listen to, the feelings we follow, the way we deal with the disappointments of life, how we derive our worth, our identity, our value, how we relate to other people, how we handle conflict, the habits we cultivate into our bodies. This is where the self fights for recognition and power and control. Now, these first disciples were quite familiar with the idea of a treasure hidden in a field because there was no Wells Fargo in the first century. So people hid their valuables on their property. The dirt, in other words, was their savings account. And if they died before retrieving their treasure, their treasure would remain hidden. Unless or until someone found it. And so the man Jesus references in the first of these parables is likely a peasant working in a field. And he wasn't looking for treasure. He was working. And he was working one day when his pickaxe slammed into something solid under the ground. And he discovered a hidden treasure. A jar or a chest filled with money and valuables and jewels and diamonds, 
of exquisite value. Multiple millions of dollars bunched in $100,000 stacks just staring back at him from under the ground. And when this worker found this treasure, he knew instantly what to do, but more importantly, he did it. He liquidated his life. He sold every single thing he had. And he went and he bought the field because he knew the value of the treasure in the field exceeded by far his own treasure that he just spent to buy the field. When the guy discovered the treasure, he took immediate action. And this beautiful phrase in verse 44, in his joy, he sold everything he had and bought the field with gladness, with celebration, with sheer delight, he surrendered everything he had for the treasure in the field. Now, we can get all sidetracked by questions about, oh no, are we supposed to sell everything we've got? Are we supposed to sell our house? Are we supposed to quit our job? And those are interesting questions, and maybe they are relevant questions, but it's not really the point, or at least not the focus, of this parable. This is about what we value. This is about what we prize above all. And how our actions always follow our treasure. Our will is shaped by our treasure. So our heart always chases whatever it is that we treasure. The parable of the expensive pearl is similar, though a little bit different. It's not about a peasant. It's about a merchant. An entrepreneur went on Shark Tank with a buy and sell pearls idea and hit it big. And the Bible says he found a pearl of, and this is the phrase, great value. Now, the word behind the phrase great value is used two other times in the New Testament. In John 12, verse 3, Mary takes, here's the same word, an expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet as an act of worship. And Judas goes on to complain by saying that perfume bottle and what was in that, perf- that bottle was worth a whole year's wages and she just wasted it. Same word. In 1 Peter 1.7, Peter says, The proven genuineness of your faith, here's the same word again, of greater worth than gold. It's easy to miss what's happening here. The merchant found a pearl worth multiple millions of dollars. It was more than the total of all the other pearls in his inventory. So like the peasant in the field, the merchant immediately knew what to do and more importantly, went and did it. He sold everything he had, every pearl he had, and he went and bought the pearl of great value. So two thoughts worth our consideration from these parables. And the first is the incomparable goodness of the kingdom of God. I just love the language in verse 44. In his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Now, if you don't know what in his joy means, if that's an elusive concept, rewind the tape in your head to what you saw going up here about 15 minutes ago. That would be an example of in their joy. And if you really locked in on a few of them, 
their joy was uncontainable because they kept moving from this side to that side and back to this side because you just couldn't stand still. See, in his joy, this is the unbridled joy of a child awakening in a grown man who has made a discovery that is going to change his life. And the goodness of it is indescribable and uncontainable. See, the kingdom is supremely valuable because it is genuinely good. And it brings forth exquisite goodness. It ushers in shalom with whatever it touches. It leads to human flourishing in the manner God intended for human flourishing to look like. So there's a vision here of who God is, easily missed. And there's a vision here of what he has done. And that is to bring us into the life we were created to experience both now and for all eternity. And his kingdom cascades goodness into every situation of our lives, even though we know life is sometimes full of challenge and struggle and disappointment. See, the kingdom is supreme because the kingdom is so good. Just think of the way of the kingdom versus the way of the self and the way of the world. Love, the way of the kingdom, is better than hate. Patience, the way of the kingdom, is better than anger. People say, oh, thank you for your patience. Anyone ever said to you, oh, thank you for your anger? Peace is better than fear. Trust is better than control. Reconciliation is better than division and bitterness and unforgiveness. Kindness is better than meanness. Gentleness is better than harshness. And you know what? We know this. The eternity God deposited in our hearts knows what is good and the kingdom bursts with incomparable goodness. Arts Camp infuses this campus with kingdom goodness. Why? The unbridled joy of children, the stunning picture of young, young and old being together, working together, and learning about God from each other. The whole endeavor of Arts Camp is an example of good work by many people for the sake of his kingdom. Shared sacrifice for the mid-year offering captures a little bit of the goodness of the kingdom. Coming together and giving towards something beyond ourselves and beyond our benefit. See, the kingdom of God is better, or for the English majors among us, the kingdom of God is gooder than what we create in the kingdom of self. Take one example. The thoughts we have on our own about our worth or our identity. Let me say it this way. The thoughts we have about our worth and identity that are influenced and shaped by the kingdom are infinitely better than the thoughts we have about our worth and our identity that are influenced and shaped by our own interests or impulses or desires or dysfunctions or pride or insecurity. Romans 14 and verse 17, we're going to sort of contradict this verse a little bit today, but I'll read it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions three goodnesses of the kingdom of God. Three indicators, three signs, three things that are going to be breaking out in us when the kingdom is present. Three ways the goodness of the kingdom wants to flow in our lives. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, of doing what is right in the eyes of God. The goodness of doing what we were made to do. I suspect you know what I'm talking about. The goodness when you do what you're made to do. Music stands are supposed to hold things up. Flowers bloom. And people were designed to do right things in the eyes of God. And there's something about it when we're in the midst of it. Peace is another one. Not the absence of conflict, but an inner rest that comes from our confidence in God about who we are and how the future will ultimately turn out. Kingdom peace, inner rest, because we're confident in God about who we are and about how the future will turn out. So the storm within, around our identity and worth, is calmed. And we experience kingdom peace, joy. It's not simply happiness or pleasure, as we typically understand those things. It is a pervasive sense of well-being that flows from what we intimately know about God and about his kingdom. Put it this way. Joy is when you know that all really is well, even when it doesn't seem so. The kingdom is supremely good above all other goods and all other alternatives. So let me try to drive this home. You'll notice next to me, there is over on the far end a few items that are actually have been fairly important to me throughout the course of my life. There is, heading the list, my all-time favorite, Skippy Extra Crunch Peanut Butter. Uh, thank you. Well done. Give that person their offering back. The, the uh, peanut butter, I've loved peanut butter my whole life. When I was in college, and admittedly still to this day, I just would take a spoon and just go shoveling and eat it straight off the spoon, put it on anything and everything. This is a classic thing that happens in our house. I'll go in the kitchen. I'm looking around for something, not really wanting to put the time into it. So I'll just take a spoon, submerge it into the peanut butter, and lick it. And a few minutes later, Julie's making something for herself. And it's got this gourmet quality to it. It's a little bit better than the peanut butter on the spoon. And I'm going, what is that? And no, no, you had your peanut butter kind of thing. So... Crunchy peanut butter. I love crunchy peanut butter. Captain Crunch, growing up well into my 20s, well into my 30s, well into my 40s. (laughs) Captain Crunch. When I was in college once, we didn't have uh, enough stuff that you would typically put Captain Crunch on, namely milk. So I put lemonade on a bowl of Captain Crunch. I just love Captain Crunch. That's a lot of sugar, I know. But the other thing about the Captain Crunch, I was telling Izzy about this yesterday, is that You know, it says on there, a sweetened cereal, which is shorthand for, or longhand for, sugar. And, but it was never quite as good as when you'd put two or three spoonfuls of sugar on top of it. And then it would sink down to the bottom of the milk or the lemonade, and at the end, you're just digging away. Third is Chips Ahoy cookies. One time, my brother and I came home from wherever we were, 
We still talk about this. We grabbed a, a carton of milk and a bag of those things and sat and one by one ate the whole thing. Just buried chips ahoy. And then the last thing is caramel corn, popcorn, caramel corn, just love it all. If you're looking for a single word to summarize a few of my favorite things, the word is sugar, and they're all right there. Now, that's the kingdom of self, we're going to call it. That is Mike's kingdom over there. And they represent the kingdom of myself, my way, what I prefer, what I treasure, what I value. Now let's try what's in here. This is representative of the kingdom of God. There is a bone-in New York strip steak in here. There are two pieces of peppered bacon in here, either to put on the steak or to eat alongside of it. And for those of you for whom you find this disgusting, there's a plant-based burger in here as well. So, kingdom of Mike, I would suggest. Kingdom of God would be these things. Kingdom of Mike, one word, sugar. Kingdom of God, one word, substance. The kingdom of heaven is like a bone-in New York strip steak with peppered bacon wrapped around it or on the side, the delicious good way of Jesus. And here's the question, which is better? Which do you want? Which one is the treasure? See, our wills and our thoughts and our hearts and our bodies and our actions will follow what we treasure. Now here's the thing, and this is underdeveloped in most of us. The kingdom is not just ideas up here. It's not just thinking about this stuff. It is not mainly, in fact, brain stuff. The kingdom is sense stuff. The kingdom is seen. The kingdom is heard. You know anger when you see it. You know patience when you hear it. The kingdom is seen. It is heard. It is tasted. It is smelled. It is imagined. The kingdom awakens the child in us. The kingdom stretches our savoring muscles. The goodness of the kingdom pulls the totality of who we are into it. And when the senses start to get engaged in the kingdom, not just our brains, we really under, start to understand the guy in the parable who, in his joy, sold everything for the treasure. The kingdom of Jesus then captures our eyes and our ears and our taste and our longing because that's just how good it is. So, rather than just talk about it, everybody's got to be as quiet as he can. I hope this works. Let me put a little salt on this. By the way, just to save you a long walk, no, you can't have any when this is over. It won't be done anyway. Little pepper. Little Pam grilling spray. Hopefully this doesn't flare up. A microphone. You can all go home. (laughs) 
This is better than I thought it was going to be, actually. Now, the plant-based burger is starting to fall apart, but... Now, right now, Rick Leary's having a coronary, by the way, but we'll be all right. I mean, just listen to that. Now, if we sat here long enough, and it won't take long, it's not just sight, it's not just sound, you're going to start smelling the goodness. And then eventually, you won't get to, but I will get to, taste the goodness. <laughs> so just the picture. See, now, when, when I do this, there's all the sight, there's all the sound, there's all the smell. But here's what happens to me. I just drift back into my backyard. And I drift back into time with my family over the years. In fact, I drift, back, I drift ahead toward what's going to be happening in about three hours. And the sight, the sound, the smell, the conversation, the imagination, all the senses engaged in the goodness and in the greatness. And this is the incomparable goodness of the kingdom. And all I want to suggest to you is we're made for this. Thank you. This is what we're looking for. And here's the thing. This is how it works. If you want the steak or the bacon or the plant-based burger, you've got to give up the peanut butter and the Captain Crunch and the Chips Ahoy and the caramel corn. And I suspect some of us may be thinking, yeah, I'd do that. I'd give that up. But not always. Sometimes I want caramel corn. I don't want to watch a movie with a tri-tip. I want to watch a movie with popcorn. And this is where the metaphor crumbles, so we don't need to beat it to death, right? It's all over. Life in God's kingdom is always better than the alternative. So, secondly, the cost is always worth it. There's a cost to life in God's kingdom. In both parables, the men sold all they had. There's a cost. To have the steak, we have to abandon the cookies. To have the substance, we've got to get rid of the sugar. But the real cost is not in what we have to surrender or sacrifice or lose in order to experience the kingdom of God and taste its goodness. The real cost is in what we will miss if we choose to hold back and if we hedge. So the real cost is in what we will miss if we don't surrender. Let me give you a personal example. Let me turn this stuff first. Let me give you a personal example. It has to do with this idea of peace. It has to do with the, this idea of kingdom peace. And this is an area that I feel like God is working on in me. Something that I'm having to learn. And I'm not very far along with this. But it's this idea of the kingdom goodness of peace, of inner well-being, of rest, inner rest. And in order to experience that, I, Mike, I have to give up the way I see things, the way I interpret things, what my mind tells me about who I am, what my thoughts say about how the future is going to turn out. I have to surrender the inner storm, the chaos within, and the things I keep believing that keeps the chaos chaotic. I have to surrender old ways of thinking. I have to surrender comparative thinking, speculative thinking. And I have to surrender all the maneuvering that emerges from the games going on inside of my head. And I have to lay them aside. Those are 
The king, those games are the kingdom of Mike. So it is costly to let go of those things. Because I've played these games a long time. I'm a Hall of Famer in these games. A quote by someone named Julian of Norwich gets right to this. If a man or woman could see God as God is continually with man, he would be safe in soul and body and come to no harm. And furthermore, he would have more consolation and strength than all this world can tell. For it is God's will that we believe that we see him continually, though it seems to us that the sight be only partial. And through this belief, he makes us always to gain more grace. For God wishes to be seen, and he wishes to be sought, and he wishes to be expected, and he wishes to be trusted. That's the thinking and acting of someone alive and alert to the kingdom of God. And it costs to become the kind of person who thinks this way and lives this way. But you tell me, is that way of thinking and that way of living better than the alternative? One final thing, and then we'll move into communion. A quote from Dallas Willard. And I want us just to hear this as him speaking this to us. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's our responsibility. So as we prepare ourselves for communion, the way it will work is the way it always works. There will be ushers that come to the back of your section, and they will dismiss you out to the right, and you will come forward to receive the bread and the cup, and you can eat and drink as it's given to you, or receive both, continue across the front of your section, back up the next aisle, and you can return to your seat. There are prayer teams that will be available today. Uh, there, is, there will be one uh, uh, prayer team back there and another one back there. And if you've come with any burden, any need, anything you'd like someone to pray for, would encourage you to go there. Our communion liturgy will be on <clears throat> the screens. And we come to this table today because we are people of the kingdom. And we recognize that as we come to the table, we feast once again on the thing that gives us substance. The essence of our lives the essence of our salvation, the essence of our faith. We come again to commune, to experience, to interact with and be shaped by our King. So I'd like you to bow your heads if you would and take a moment simply to quiet yourself. As we prepare for the communion liturgy.